Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to another Beyond the Cover. We are so pleased to have you. Of course, I'm one of your hosts, John Robin. I'm here with my good friend, Jeff Ayers. Jeff, how you doing? Doing fantastic. Happy Tuesday. Happy Tuesday. Uh, great conversation last week with Kevin O'Brien. If you guys didn't catch that one, you want to make sure that you subscribe to us on iTunes and check out our Kevin O'Brien talk. We had a lot of great discussion, and it even came up this week when I happened to see it, and I'm sitting there watching it, and I'm sitting there, and I'm actually thinking about Kevin's book and this and that, and, and I'm like, wow, you know, this is kind of exactly what we were talking about. So I'm going to have that review later for you guys in the um, in the show after we get with our guest. And we have our guest tonight. His name is Eric C. Anderson, and he's in the book he wrote was um, Osiris. And it's an extremely, uh, it's a military thriller, and it's, it's really intriguing. It's the first book in a trilogy, so we wait till, can't wait to talk to Eric to more about that. But first, we want to let you guys all know, of course, that all of our shows here are brought to you by Kensington Books, so make sure you visit kensingtonbooks.com for more information on all of their authors and all of their releases and everything else they have going on. So you ready, Jeff? Yep, let's do it. All right, and again, everybody, I just want to say I am outside again because it's nice and cool, so if you hear a bird or if you hear a fire truck or you hear police, they're actually not coming for me. It's just that I am outside. Yeah. So, yeah, unless Jeff called them on me, but that's another story. <laughs> so without any further ado, let's – and then look, there's a moth that just landed on my computer. How cool is that? So here we go. Eric, thanks so much for coming to the show. I bet you never thought it was going to be like this. How you doing? Hey, thank you, John and Jeff. I I greatly appreciate it. You know, I'm up here in the great Northwest, so so it's, Jeff. It's actually, oh settled, God, it's actually settled in on us. So you know, welcome to the the rainy season, what we call the no weather season. So I'm not sitting in the backyard. I'm sitting in the house. Yeah, you and me both, because uh, I'm in the Northwest as well. So totally understand that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm down in Los Angeles, so. I don't even know what rain is. What are you guys talking about, this rain thing? Yeah, but, you know, the nice thing is where I live, you can breathe the air. And I understand that's a problem down where you're at. I have no problem <laughs> breathing the air down here. Um, it's a problem of regurgitating it. But, you know, where I live, a little bit in Ventura County, we don't have the smog issues that, you know, L.A. County does. And when it does rain or have a lot of wind or whatnot, it kind of knocks that out, and it looks really, really, you know, clear, and it looks really cool. But I also don't have winter you know, we have people say, "Oh, you guys don't have four seasons." I'm like, "Well, we got enough seasons. We just got rid of all the shitty ones, because I don't have to worry about you know 35 degree weather and anything else like that." Like you, you guys know, do. Well, no. it's 35 degrees. It ain't winter here. You know that that's having lived in Washington D.C. for a number of years. Winter is 20 degrees and it's snowing or crapping on you. So no, that is this true. Isn't and, bad. I'm not going to complain. That's true. And I'm from and the Midwest. LA has four seasons. It's just a hotel. Oh, okay. that's true. Yeah, we do have one of them. <laughs> so right, I, I think I may have stayed there at some point in my career. <laughs> anyway, could have, could have, back, yeah, back on track. Could have probably got sick in one <laughs> yes. of them. I could have. I don't know. Okay, so so let's get into it. So your latest book is called Osiris, and it is the first in a trilogy, and it is a military thriller. And of course, you know Washington is big, and some other uh, places you've taken readers uh, across the world. Give us a taste of what you got. 
So let's take your imagination just for a minute and look at what we have sitting in the Middle East at this point in time. You've got the rise of what appears to be the new caliphate, the reemergence of the great empire that was going to challenge the Ottomans and march across both the Levant and into Europe. And does so and succeeds admirably right up until about 750 when we drive them out. And then we discover that there's this great slump in, in Islamic history. And I, I tell people, you know, think about where the Chinese are at and they're complaining about the way the world has treated them. The Chinese complain about their century of humiliation from 1835 in the Opium Wars right up until 1949 when Mao Zedong takes back the country. The Islamic world, on the other hand, has had a thousand years of shame from the Crusades to the present day. And so what I'm presenting to an audience is an explanation that says if you're looking at this book and you're wondering where the madman is coming from, here's a a chance for the youth of present-day Islam to recapture the glory that should have been that which was supposed to be bestowed by the Prophet Muhammad. This is and I and I, I have to admit that I, I play the thousand shades of gray. There aren't good and bad within my novel. Everybody's got their problems and everybody has their, their benefits. And so I, I, I try to introduce people to that process. And the way to think about you know, another way of looking at the world, what we have here, on the other hand, is a, a chance for the redemption to take place at the great cost of American citizenry. In this case, the Baghdad embassy. Um, and if if you watch the news, you'll realize that the embassy in Baghdad is the largest overseas installation that the State Department operates, somewhere around 5,000 people. And they are about to befall an unfortunate fate. Uh, and this is where Osiris takes you in the, the adventure that they have to walk their way through. What I'm, what I'm doing with the trilogy itself is I'm trying to walk you through not only this unfortunate instant, instance in history, but then here's how this transforms and moves its way forward as we go through time. So that the second book is looking at what I call the great cancer. And it's the dissemination of a revolutionary, and I I do refer to it as revolutionary as opposed to terrorism, a revolutionary evolution in the way that the Islamic world wants to proceed. Uh, And it's not done in armies. And it's not done in terrorist cells. It's done by individuals and where they can reach out into societies and have a dramatic impact on the way that, that we look at politics. And then book three, uh, Horus, uh, in, in, I'll come back to the names, please remind me, is a look at... I was going to ask you about what that, happens. actually. Yeah, I'll come... Uh, thank you. I'll come back to it in a moment, if you'll remind me, please. Uh, of course. Horus takes us up into the evolution where instead of marching up to the gates of Madrid... Uh, which is where the the Islamic armies ended in about 750 AD, we're going to march up to the gates of Paris, onto the Seine. Uh, And so it's a a very different perspective on the way that the world operates. And I'm sorry, go ahead, fire away. Well, uh, why the titles that you're mentioning? Because you're talking Egyptian. I I am. And the the reason that we chose the titles, and and I work with Adam Dunn, who's my publisher, and Adam suggested, you know, why don't we go back and look at Egyptian mythology as a means of sort of drawing people in and thinking about the broader consequences here. Osiris is the god of the dead. And now we have his offspring coming in as the second and third books. And that's why we've chosen the names that we have. Okay. 
have I stopped you on the the? Oh no 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 not at all. Ancient um, Egyptian so, mythology. <laughs> <laughs> no no not at all. Um, one of the things I was curious about is um, Adam Dunn has been publishing books for a while, but you're the first author that he actually has published that's not himself. So I'm kind of wondering how that happened. So here's a, a funny story for you. Um, I wrote, uh, as, you, as your readers will discover, I wrote the first book ever published on Sovereign Wealth Fund. Um, and it was, it was a consequence of my attending a, an investors conference where I was doing uh, investment advice on northern Iraq, of all things. Uh, and this is in 2006. And somebody in the back of the room stood up and said, what are the sovereign wealth funds doing? And the three smart men sitting in the front of the room, myself and a, an economist from Harvard and a guy from the State Department, looked at each other and went, sovereign wealth funds? I have no idea. So I, I started digging. Well, as a result, I, I put the book together, uh, take the money and run. And Adam stumbled into it when he was writing his first book and called me up and said, you know, I, I'd like to talk to you about this. And it turned into a, a long-term relationship. I'm one of his outside readers when he's doing uh, his work. And then he said, you know, when he was looking at what I was going to do next, he said, you know, how about if I take this on? Um, and so Adam's got quite the project going here. He's doing a, a television series now on his three books, uh, and they're in production as we speak. Uh, and then he's taken me on his his first author in his entrepreneurial spirit to set up done books. Um, and so you have, for readers who are looking for a whole new transition here, uh, done books is going to be an interesting place to watch as he goes along because I, I know where he's headed. Uh, and um, among other things, he's picked up Bunker 13. Uh, and you guys could do a whole show on Bunker 13, and you need to get Adam to talk to you on it. <laughs> okay. Uh, so my question here is: There's so many political thrillers that have been in the last couple of years that, have, of course, you know, dealt with terrorism. I mean, that's like the biggest thing. And you know, you see ISIS talked about so much before. Whereas Al Qaeda now is kind of ISIS and things like that. So when you sat down and, and you were thinking about, you know, wanting to write this trilogy and whatnot, what was the one thing that you kind of wanted to make sure that you kind of did that kind of stood yourself outside of the rest of kind of the formulaic kind of writing? that the military thrillers have kind of gotten themselves involved to because it's very difficult for me to kind of jump into one of these just because I kind of see the back of the book and they all kind of say the same thing. So I want to know what you kind of were thinking about that and decided to do. Mm. Oh, I, no, I agree with you. It, it, it's too easy to write to a formula. And in my whole push on this was that having spent a good deal of time both in Saudi Arabia and in Iraq, was that you, you can't sell this as a, a black and white. There isn't a good guy and a bad guy that you can clearly identify with. That There are faults within both sets of characters, and there is something that's appealing to both sets of characters as well. Uh, and that that I've always, for me, the, the military thriller was always you know a, a prejudged uh, finale, if you will. And this is not. Uh, and the, the idea is that there there's going to be something that leaves you wondering where are they headed next, and why? And that was my goal in putting this together, was to explain the, the why. Why are we proceeding down this path as opposed to just simply juxtaposing two sets of characters and letting them go battle it out out in the desert? That, that wasn't amusing to me. That's not how reality operates. Okay, cool. Very nice. like that. 
Well, what is it about your background that um, gives this novel, Osiris, such authenticity? So uh, I, I, I am one of these people that I always tell uh, my friends, I'm, I'm a failed academic. I graduated from the University of Missouri with a Ph.D., Oh my God! So am I. We're, we're this together. I'm a failed academic. Oh. Well, I, I feel <laughs> sorry for you. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I think I, I may have figured out what I wanted to do in life eventually. So I, I walked out the door. My uh, my mother cried. I think my mother's cried twice in my entire life. One was when I came home with a 1964 Harley Davidson. And she said she was convinced that when I was in high school. She said, "I'm convinced you'll kill yourself." I didn't. And then the can, I the other time? I, can I guess when, the other time? Can I guess the other time? The other time was when you said, "Mom, time. I'm moving back in the house." Yeah, no, they they don't complain <laughs> about that. But they when I resigned no, my, my tenure faculty position at the University of Missouri, and they went, "Oh, you did what?" And she was not she was not pleased with me. Uh, and she says, "Well, what are you going to do?" And I said, "I'll find a job." She goes, "You're going to line up with a job with your name on your shirt." She was right. Landed up in the Air Force. And your name is on your shirt. Yes, it is. Uh, and I, and I bounced my way across. Uh, ten years of active duty as the senior analyst in Korea for four years, in Japan for three years, and Saudi Arabia for a year. And then I landed up at the Air Force Academy, back to teaching again because the Air Force finally figured out that maybe I was useful in a classroom. And I lasted nine months. And I told them, you know, I quit. And I went to the Air Force Reserve and got hired at the Pacific Command. Uh, as their senior analyst, first for North Korea and then for China. Um, and so I, I spent five years living on my sailboat out there and enjoying life. And then I woke up one morning and I had a phone call from Baghdad and they said, uh, you're coming to work for us. And I said, no, I hate the sandbox. And the next thing I knew, three weeks later, I was in the sandbox for seven months. Uh, so it's been a career that's allowed me to bounce and run as I go along. And then I when I came back, I was expecting to go to Hawaii, and instead they sent me to Washington, D.C., and I landed up working at CIA. So it, it's a small wow. world at some point. You get you get trapped into things. So when your reader says, do you have any experience in this area, uh, unfortunately my experience is relatively intimate. Yeah, I would say so. Uh, now, but now, see, we have another thing in common, because my dad recruited for the Air Force Academy for like 20 years when he got out. He was a navigator and got out of active duty, went to the reserves, and then he recruited for the Air Force Academy for, yeah, like 20, 23 years or something. He did that for a while. Um, wow. And that was kind of cool. That was kind of cool to kind of see some of those high school students and, and doing that, so I thought that was neat. But the, the military experience that you get and then when you write, it, it's two kind of totally separate things. So when, when you're when you're kind of putting the words on the page and you're kind of trying to get the scenes and things correct, of course there's a lot of terminology, a lot of things that you know people like me – you know, don't you know might not know or understand or whatnot. So, how do you kind of take out some of the boring too, and make it more entertaining and interesting? Kind of like when they have to do with legal thrillers and things like that, because most of the courtroom scenes are ninety-eight percent of it is extremely boring, but you have to make it entertaining. And then trying to gum that down for people like me to kind of understand, you know, where you're coming from. I, I think John Grissom has probably one of the hardest jobs on the planet, and that is turning legalese into English. But, you know, I, I don't have to do that. What, what I've done is, one, I, in my career, I've always emphasized the fact that I am a translator between two worlds. One, the expertise that I have within a particular area, 
And the second is to be able to explain that to people who would need to use the information. Um, this is why they like me in Washington, because I could actually sit down and with a policymaker who a lot of them have a hard time tying their shoes, but at least they can listen. And if you could turn it into English, they were happy. So what I've done with the books is that I, one, include a glossary in the back. So if you're really lost, you can open it up and anything that's terribly technical, there's going to be an explanation for you. And two, I understand that most of us don't look at this on a day-in and day-out basis. And so you have to put it into a format that people can understand. Here's what this airframe does or here's what this weapon is useful for. But it doesn't get caught in that technical end where you're thinking, geez, do I really need to know the caliber of the gun that the guy is employing? No, you don't. Now you're talking you, you now you're talking to the forty pages of Tom Clancy reading the manual. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. Yes. Now Tom Clancy will drive you crazy if you have to try to read through his books. That's Does true. that help? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, because just real quick, Jeff, but that's the thing is like, you know, I'm trying to say like Clancy would write, he's, you know, he, he started getting into more of the, how does this airplane work? And it's like, I don't give a shit as long as it blows up the bad guys. (laughs) I, I worked for, for uh, John Landry, but John was the national intelligence officer for military issues. And, and John always had, I think the best phrase for this kind of problem. He says, I asked you the time. Don't tell me how to build the fucking clock. And I, I think that's perfect. You know, it's, it, I don't need to know how to build the fucking clock. I just want to know how to tell the time. And the, that's what I'm trying to do for people who are reading my books is that here's what you, you need to know. If you're really going to dig into it, you, you have the opportunity. I've given you the technical data necessary so that you can go off on the Internet and find it. But you don't have to get buried in the reading, and it's it's intended to be a page turner so that you're not lost in the the Tom Clancy detail. Well, speaking of that, I'm curious how hard of a transition was it for you to start writing fiction because you've written a lot of nonfiction. I, I have to say, this is not. <laughs> I've done a couple of them that I did that I've thrown away. Um, it is not an easy transition. And, and I, the, the part that I, I find hard to explain to people is if you're going to write a novel, you have to have a conversation that takes place within conversations. And figuring out how your characters are going to express themselves and get across the information you need in order to keep the story rolling is a challenge. Uh, and, you'll, you know, I find I'll read it back and I'll go, no, that's not how people talk. So let's start over again. And you have to learn how to get that dialogue running. I, I will also tell you that once you do one of these and you practice enough, the second one pretty much wrote itself for me um, because you you assume the voices. I, I don't know how many you know novels say this, but you actually hear these people talking to you, and, and it's a, a a process that I I I actually do live with my parents. By the way, I help take care of them, so. I, you know, I'll have a conversation at dinner, and I'll say, you know, here's the things we were talking about. And my mother one day, she says, who are you talking to? And I said, oh, never mind. I'm sorry. It's me and the computer having a conversation on an ongoing basis. And it's it's uh, an interesting discovery. And I I was having a conversation with a, a sociologist I know pretty well, and he, he said, you know, the, the concern with the average American is that they're going to lose their hearing over time. And he says – I'm gathering from your generation, and I, I'm 55, but he says, you know, I'm gathering from your generation. You won't miss your hearing because 90% of your conversation takes place on a keyboard. 
And I said, yeah, that would be a true statement. I mean, this, this, the, the transition that happens. So let's look. So let's kind of look forward a little bit now into the series, and kind of let us know a little bit. Like, what do you think you're going to have planned? I mean, do you think that? Um, what are okay? I guess basically, what are you, what are readers going to you know going to see from you in the future? Are you going to kind of now that this kind of first book is out? Did you know Eric Anderson, the author, change his writing style a little bit? Is there some things that you're going to work on further in the series? Maybe more scene setting dialogue or anything else like that? Are people going to see a different maybe author in the second book? What do you what do you what do you see that happening? I don't think that you'll see a different different author, but what you're going to encounter is a transition in the way that the storyline works in the, in the sense that I go from one of the large romantic series to and it's here's how this this threat, if you will, or this revolution disseminates its way across the Western world and why you need to be paying attention to what's happening in your neighborhood as much as you're paying attention to what's happening in Baghdad. And and that's a, an interesting conversation to have because the, the characters, I, I continue to, to play with the Turks because I what I see transitioning here over time is that the, the Turks, particularly under President Erdogan, would like to have a new Ottoman Empire. Well, they now have competition in the Middle East, and it would be with Mr. al-Baghdadi, uh, or now you know, he calls himself Khalif Ibrahim. So he, mm-hmm. you've got these competing forces within the Middle East who would like to revert back to what we all would look at as ancient history. Uh, and so this is where the, the novels start to work their way forward. What, you know, not to spoil where I'm headed, but what I'm going to do to these poor people is that one of the two sides gets to win, and it isn't the one that sits in Ankara. Uh, and so that, that's how I, I work forward. But do the voices change? I I would hope not in the sense that I'm trying to keep the characters uh, alive, well, and, and coherent to somebody who's picked up the first book and goes, wait a minute, I think I've heard this voice before, and I would like to keep that running as it goes along. So I do, I have to admit, a lot of back reading as you're writing, so that I remember what I was doing for sort of the, the vocabulary and the expressions that a particular character will use and, and where their thought processes were at and where they were going next. And so there is a, a continuum there so that you're not going to feel like you're living in a disjointed world. Gotcha. Well, um, speaking of the world, I'm kind of curious. Um, uh, do you this, – this is like a two-part question here. Um, do you still have a hand in the business, even though I know you're officially retired, and – since you've been in this world, what do you see as the future of this area? Especially now, you know, today there was a UN meeting and there's all this discussion like North Korea and China and all these other things going on. What do you see as our future of that? Hmm. I, to answer your first question, without going too far, you, you never really retire. Um, so I, I actually keep fairly busy talking to people and I, I get a lot of phone calls. I also land up actually getting together playing periodically. Uh, it's just oh, the nature okay. of my business. Wow. The, to, to answer the, the second part of your question, um, if you look at the future, particularly within the Middle East, 
uh, and we can talk about North Korea. I spent a lot of time in Asia, so we can do that as well if you want. But the you look at a, you look at a region where you have a, a democracy demography that does not favor uh, stability, uh, and that you you have a, a large pool of unemployed, fairly educated young people who have no place else to look, and so it, it, it's a where do I find something to do with my life that will have an impact on the way that society moves forward. And I, you know, I, I hearken back to an observation that I, I got from working on issues in Libya, and that was that, you know, Muammar Gaddafi realized he had this demography, and the best way to keep young men away from the gun was to provide them money so that they would get married. Because once you got married and had children, what wife wants you to go off and shoot things? Um, and that uh-huh. that is not an option that's been made available within Egypt, certainly within Syria, uh, or Iraq, or Iran. And so you have a, a region that is rife for instability, and we can't help that process until there's an answer that comes along in the form of what is gainful employment and how do we bring essentially to the Middle East what was brought to you know, Southeast Asia, and that was here's where the labor market migrated to. Well, you have a huge labor market, but nobody wants to put a factory there because they're never sure if the government's going to be the same one tomorrow that it was yesterday. Uh, so you you have a real problem, resident. And if you can find a cause for the youth to latch onto, uh, woe be to anybody who's going to stand in the way. And I, and I think that's really what you're looking at when you you start talking about the caliphate. Okay. Hmm. Very interesting. Well, I'll tell you, Eric, before you go, um, of course, I want to give you the opportunity to kind of let everybody know where's the best place they can find out more about your work, uh, website, social media, all that fun stuff that we all have to have nowadays, you know. Oh, sure, no problem. So Dunn Books, D-U-N-N, um, I think it's dot .books.com, dot uh, okay. and you can – this is Adam's – Book, book site, uh, and it's his, his business where we're running things. Um, if you do a search for me online, Eric C. Anderson, you'll find a number of things that I've stuck my fingers into. I used to write for Huffington Post, among other things. And so oh, nice. you can get a, a variety of perspectives on you know, what the crazy man has been up to lately. Um, and then, of course, Amazon, where everybody buys books these days, including me. I'm guilty. Uh, so we're, we're scattered everywhere. And doing, I have to brag a little bit. We're doing actually very, very well on Amazon right now. Um, I think we're number fifty on their book list. So if you're, you're familiar with Amazon's book list, they have a hundred, no, it's a million four hundred thousand copies of various things. And Osiris is at number fifty. So people apparently nice. Buy it. So I, I've been, I've been very happily surprised. That's great. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. Well, hey, Eric. Again, we want to thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure to kind of get into, you know, the psyche and, and the behind the scenes look into your book, Osiris, and can't wait to kind of see what the trilogy holds. So, good luck and and look forward to seeing what's going on in the future. Well, I hope to hear from you guys again. Thank you. Thank you so much. Right, yeah. Good we'll luck. Talk to you soon. And stay cool up there in, in the north in the northwest. <laughs> I will. Or no, 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 yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, enjoy LA. All right. All right. Hey, guys, so thanks so much. Good evening.
You too. Take care. So again, everybody, that is author Eric C. Anderson. The book is Osiris, and it is out now. So make sure you um, uh, you can go buy it wherever books are sold. Uh, like you just said, mention on Amazon. So you can go to Amazon right now, and you can pick it up. It's in hardcover. It's in Kindle, so you can pick it up however you want it. So, Jeff. Yes. You there? Oh, good. I yes, I am. And, uh, knocked it's off done, a little bit. I was just looking. Uh, it's donebooks.com. D-U-N-N-Books.com. Oh, okay, so D-U-N-N. No the, just yeah. Dunbooks. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. Dunbooks.com. Nice. Yes. Okay, so Dunbooks.com. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that's a really cool, um, yeah. you know, I like the trilogy aspect of, of the book, without a doubt. I think that that's going to, I think that that lends to, you know, a little bit different in the military thriller uh, stuff, knowing that it's going to be a trilogy um, I kind of like the Egyptian and the and the aspects and the and the things like that. So and and what can we you know I kind of I, I we just sent the review in so um, you know it is book it is a book that we recommend because if we review it and we recommend it so it's going to be in the magazine. Um, just kind of got to see what it's going to go on in the future. I think that's what it's going to be. I think that's what I'm going to do. Cool. But there's a couple things that we wanted to talk about, and I know you wanted to talk about the new Orville, and then. Um, the yeah. discovery on the Star Trek, um, and then I saw it, so I have a little review about that one. Um, what, what do you want to do first? You want me to do my? You want me to do it, and then you go in, or do you want to talk about yours first? What do you, what do you want to do? Well, go ahead. I want to hear about it myself. Okay, so so go for it. Everybody what, knows. What's going on with well, it? I thought that everybody knew that this was a Stephen King book, but. Seeing when I went to the movie theater, I realized that not everybody knew this was an, an actual book at one time. Um, so That's basically, depressing. I mean, yeah, I mean, if you saw the original with Tim Curry, and I thought he did a great job, and I mean, and this is exactly what Kevin and, and you and I were talking about last week, which was that movie came out, I believe, like in the early 90s. Um, That's right. Some, I think it was series, the early yeah. 90s which was a much different time of how horror was done because that movie, when you looked at the early 90s, like my kids would watch it, and they got scared watching a movie like that back in the early 90s. I don't think they would have gotten scared watching that same movie today. So what they've done, and of course, you've seen the pictures of the clown. Um, he's yeah. very creepy looking. Um, and the very first scene kind of starts out the same way, you know, or I'm not going to give any spoilers. You know, I mean, okay. If you haven't read the book or whatever, then that's just your own stupid fault. So, but it's the first scene, you know, when you have Georgie going down with the, you know, with the boat and everything else, and then he runs into Pennywise in the sewer. You know, that's all, you know, that was like almost identical to, to the original, and that's, you know, how the book. Of course, that's like one of the major iconic scenes in that whole thing. And the whole book, now, now the book, if people don't know, if you've never read the book, it's really two parts. It's young and old. Now, they start out old, you know, not old, but they start out um, in the book, you know, where they're older and they're going back to Derry, and then they flash back to when they were a kid when they had to face him because it comes back every 27 years, and he can be anything he wants or whatever he wants. He just happens to be this clown. And, but he's been explosions and he's been other things, and he's called chaos every 27 years. Um, and, it, and it happens to be, you know, in Derry, and then that's just what he does. So the, the, the movie's a lot darker. And it's definitely a lot more scary than what you see the other one. If you put the other one to this one, it's almost like the old one is like watching Bugs Bunny, and now this one is kind of a horror movie. Um, That's how much different they are just in that. But 
there's great character. Richie is fantastic um, as a character. Um, I thought Bill was good as a character. Um, Eddie's really good. The guy, uh, you know, that has the allergies and the really weird mom. Um, they set up him pretty good. You know, Mike was a little disappointing because they took away the history aspect away from him. Um, remember in the in, remember in the book that Mike is the history buff and actually becomes a librarian and kind of brings him back. Well, in this one, he's not. Um, the only cameo from the old movie to this one is Mike's father was actually Mike in the old one. So he plays a cameo now as Mike's father in, in this in this movie. Um, but, you know, they took that away and they gave the history part to Ben. And then Bev, Bev's character is a little bit more, um, they made her out, you know, and I'm trying to remember if this was in the book, but they made her out to be like the, the, the girl that people talk about, you know, having sex with, you know, everybody and this and that. You know, she got that, that slutty reputation, which is not true, because in the original one, she didn't have that at all. It was just basically her father thinking that she was, you know, going after boys or whatever. And this, in this one, he was a lot creepier. Um, you know, there's a, there's a scene, you know, where he is almost going to rape his daughter. I mean, that's kind of how creepy it was and, and this and that. So, but there's a lot of jump moments. There's a lot of scare moments. If you're a jumpy person, you're going to jump a lot, but it was extremely entertaining. Um, I think that two hours and 15 minutes was about 20 minutes too long um, I was kind of, you know, when it was getting to the end, I was kind of like, okay, you know, let's let's start going a little bit. Um, and why I said I don't think everybody knew it was a book is because at the very end of the movie, it goes to a black screen. It says it in red, and then it says chapter one. And there was people around me going, Cha- chapter one? What are you talking about, chapter one? And I'm like, okay, people, there's a whole book um, that you got to <laughs> read. <laughs> and you realize that they split it up as here's the kid part, and now they're going to do – the adult part as chapter two. And I'm curious to see who they're going to get a play. Cause you know, Harry Anderson was in the original. John Ritter was in the original. Um, Tim Curry was Pennywise. Um, who else? The guy who played little house on the Prairie. Um, he was bill. Uh, he was John boy in little house or in the Waltons. He was John boy in the, the Waltons. Richard Thomas. That's right. And Richard then, Thomas, um, yeah. I can't remember his name. And then, um, Stan was a famous character too. When he was an adult, uh, I can't remember who he was, but when you see him, you'll know who he was. Um, and then who was Bev? Was that? It was. Bev was oh, jeez. That... <laughs> huh? Yeah. Uh, she was. Um, she was in Superman three. As. Um... Yeah, she was. Um, she wasn't Julianne Moore. Oh, Annette O'Toole. Annette O'Toole. Thank you, Annette O'Toole. Yeah, yes. she was. She was Lana Lang. Um, yeah, she was Annette O'Toole. Yes. Um, so they had a really good cast, and I thought that this cast was really good. I thought the the kid from Stranger Things plays Richie, and he's he's fantastic. Um, you're you're gonna love him. He has, but you have to pay attention when he talks sometimes because he's gonna throw out some one liners, like, like like it's like it's nothing, and you might miss him if you if you're not paying attention. So you gotta pay attention because he's gonna throw out some one liners that you're just gonna crack up over. I'll give you one for instance. When everybody's talking about seeing Pennywise, he's the only one that hadn't seen him yet, that he hasn't encountered him yet. And so he sits there and he talks and he goes, he goes, what is it? He goes, is this just like a virgin thing? Is this why I'm not seeing this guy or what? You know, so, <laughs> you know, he's kind of making fun of everybody. 
And it's just like one of those. We, he just, he's just funny. So it's just one of those one-liners. But I would definitely give it out of four, out of five stars. I would definitely give it four and a half. Um, wow. Yeah, I would give it four and a half stars of the movie. Of course, you know, an adaptation from a book to a movie, you're going to have a little bit of differences. But the, I think that the overall feeling and the sense of what Stephen was trying to get through in it came through really good on the screen that it that it definitely would scare the hell out of you. So, and I think that that worked. I think that it worked. I think they did a good job. Uh, a complaint so I heard was uh, Pennywise as a clown character, by the end, you're kind of not as scared of him anymore. Is that a um, legitimate argument? Well, okay. After you see him at the, I mean, when you first see him, he doesn't look scary. He's just like, "Hi, Georgie, how are you?" Da, da, da. Well, then he changes into, you know, then he then he quickly opens his mouth and, you know, changes quickly into his form and bites down and, you know, take. You see him this time. You literally see him killing Georgie, like you didn't see in the original. Like Ooh, you literally okay. see him killing Georgie in this one. You didn't see that in the original. So that's a little bit more, you know, there's a little bit more blood. Not a lot of blood in this movie. That's like the most blood you see is that, is that first scene. After that, you're, you're thinking, oh, my God, that's about all you see kind of blood-wise. But the rock fight is in it with Henry and the, and the kids. That's really funny when they do the rock fight. That's really cool. Um, then, but as far as Pennywise goes, dude, there's some times in there where, I mean, yeah, he's a clown, but he's the clown too. But he's freaking creepy. There's some creepy times. I mean, like I said, there's some jump moments where after about 45 minutes in the movie, you think anyone that turns around into a doorway is, you know, or, you know like anyone who turns around or whatever, it's, you're going to get a jump moment. And that I think that's the only thing. They had a lot of those where after about an hour or so in the movie – it, it almost lost a little bit of effect because you almost assumed that now anytime someone turns, something's going to happen, but it, it it didn't. But, no, they, they kind of changed the clown. Um, but, yeah, I mean, after a while he's not going to get – I mean, is Jason creepy after you see him the first time? He's just – now you know what he looks like, so you know what he is. I think that's kind of a mm-hmm. – I, I think that's kind of a nitpicky if you're trying to say that he wasn't – as scary. Well, what are you supposed to do? He's a freaking clown. What are you going to do to him to make him any more scary? <laughs> He's already okay. killing people, ripping their faces off. You know, you kind of, you, you see, he does the, you know, they kind of have the catatonic, I think, what was it, the, the flood eyes? He does the flood eyes thing to his victims, which is in the book. Um, you know, he does that. So you literally see inside his soul what he looks like. And, I don't, you know, that didn't come through in the first one. So you get a kind of good visual about who, what he really is. Um, so I, I think that's nitpicking. If that, if that's what they're saying, then I think they're nitpicking. Cause, cause really, I mean, how many villains do you have that, you know, that are freaky in the beginning, but they're the same way all the way throughout. So it's not like he changes into another monster or something, you know, he's, that's what he is. So, okay. Yeah. They haven't, what surprises me is they haven't officially announced part two as being, Officially a go, and considering oh, how much... I think after the box office hit 117 million exactly. in their first opening week, I think the script's already mm-hmm. written, <laughs> or it's being written right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm just surprised yeah. they haven't officially announced it yet. Well, yeah. I mean, heck, they haven't even. Uh, what's today's date? The 19th of September. 
Mm-hmm. We don't even have a we don't even have we don't even have a fucking Star Wars trailer uh, a Star Wars trailer yet. For crying out loud. No, we we, Honestly, we have we don't. one that's been out for several months. Right, we have one that's ten seconds long, but we, you know, there's and it's just talk pretty much. You hear Luke, but you really don't see a lot. I mean, you see a very little. It's like what thirty seconds. You see nothing, hardly at all. So there's really no trilogy. And now they bring it out. Now they're bringing out Luke in this dark outfit that makes him look like he's turning himself into Vader. And it's like, okay, can we see a trailer or something? Can you bring anything else out? Because I mean, now there's so much infighting that you see this petition that just came online to try to get J.J. Abrams off the frickin' project. It's like, people, if you keep throwing I, I people actually, off, uh, they're going to push it back another year. It's already now to 19. <laughs> oh, I th- I th- well, I thought it was... Um, I thought it was every two years they were doing this. So you got a Han Solo next year, right? Well, yeah, but they pushed it back to Christmas of 19. I think they were trying to bring it out earlier, with, and then they got rid of the other director or whatever, so now J.J.'s involved, so now they're going to bring it out in 2019. Yeah, it was supposed to be Christmas summer, the and now one. it's going to be just the Christmas of 19. Yeah, Yeah. so I think that if you take J.J. off of the project, what, you want it to go back to Christmas of 2020? It's like, people, he did a good job in The Force Awakens. You know, he redid Star Wars. Put it this way, he didn't fuck it up. People thought that the Phantom Menace and the clones and the Sith were fuck-ups. So he didn't do that. So I don't understand what you're complaining about. I don't know what people are complaining about. Because no matter what he does, or no matter, as long as he stays true to the characters, I don't think, I don't see a problem. I mean, everybody's going to complain about something because it's not going to be the story that they wanted to be told. But that's too bad. You know, sorry, it's not going to be the story in your head. Put it this way, if it's already the story in your head, then why do you even want it? Because you already know how it's going to end and everything else. What fun is that, really? I I have to say uh, that um, Abrams, I thought, did a great job making Star Wars relevant to a new generation and also apologizing for the three previous movies. And he also relaunched the franchise, seriously. Yeah, I now we're going to do all great. these movies. And, yeah, I, I, I had mean, a good he time. put a whole new facelift on Star Trek. He did. He is really good at taking franchises and relaunching them. I, Transformers and people. I mean, you know, I mean, he did Transformers. Well, he didn't direct that. Was he involved? But in he Transformers? did Mission Impossible Three. Oh, okay, okay, he okay. Did, I, um, that, I know Michael Bay did well, Transformers, I, but I thought he did a Transformers, maybe. Uh, no, well, what I was going to say is I think people are afraid that because this will be the second movie that he's doing, that it's going to be another um, Into Darkness, which was <laughs> not well-loved by the Star Trek fan community. Well, so I think that's I think, what I think, the word I think it's a di- I think it's a different I – th- I don't think you can – I don't think you can judge the Star Trek movies off of the Star Wars movies because the Star Trek movies really didn't have an underlying, you know, they really didn't have a storyline that would, that continued the way that Star Wars does. Whereas exactly. you literally cl- he literally closed the movie with Rey holding out the lightsaber to Luke. So you're literally going to start the movie around that point, and then you already kind of have this underline of, you know, who's Rey's parents, what's Luke going to do with the Jedi, and you have these questions. And I don't think when the when the first movie of the first Star Trek ended, there was no questions as to, oh my God, what's he going to answer in the second movie? I think it was just a totally another like you could watch Into the Darkness 
and it's a standalone compared to the first one. I mean, you don't really need... But it's also you know, a remake of another movie. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a remake of Khan, to a sense. Uh, kind of, um, yeah. You know, I mean, it is. I mean, the, the first Wrath of Khan it is. Uh, was... Yeah, but the first Wrath of Khan, you know, Khan was, al- Khan was already the bad guy, and the second one, he wasn't... He didn't start out being that way. Right. And into the darkness. He kind of turned into it. And the first one, Ricardo Montalban, who played Khan, I mean, let's face it, that was kind of cheesy. But it was a good movie, but it was kind of cheesy. Um, you know, oh, I'm just course, waiting for yeah. him to say, you know, the plane, you know, I'm waiting for, like, Fantasy Island shit to go by, a uh, little tattoo to come out and say, the plane's the plane. But um, I'm sorry for all the people under 30 who didn't get that reference. But um, I don't I mean, I don't know. I thought it was entertaining. I mean, I put this, I well, think. To me, he does his job. He entertains me. I spend my 15 bucks. I feel like I got my money's worth. I think that people should give him the benefit of the doubt. I think that Disney knows what they've been doing so far with the Star Wars franchise. I, yeah. I'm amazed that people are upset before they actually even see something. Now, if he makes a really crappy movie, then by all means start petitioning. But... Uh, Give him a chance for yeah. music, and let's see how yeah. good this new one is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so hit into because I'm kind of curious about this Orville um, show. I saw that Seth MacFarlane did, and I saw some people coming out going, "Jesus, I mean, can you make it any more Star Trek?" I mean, which okay, I'm sure that's what he was kind of going for, but I'm sure it's some kind of a uh, parody. Yeah, um, it's here's the thing, um, and. I got to say right off the bat that the Fox Network does a terrible job when it comes to sci-fi shows. Terrible job. They don't know how to deal with sci-fi, and so I don't know why they even try. Um, The advertising for Orville made it look like it was Family Guy in space. It did. That's why I was like, I thought it was a parody. Yeah, it's not. And in fact, the first episode, all the humor that you see in the trailer. That's all the humor. They show you every funny scene in the trailer. The oh, show one of those is, trailers. Mm-hmm. This <laughs> show is Star Trek dead. The Next Generation with different characters. Yeah, this show's dead. Because I guarantee you people thought no, Seth MacFarlane... Well, they thought Seth MacFarlane, they thought funny, 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 and then they go see the show... And then they realize, oh, the show isn't going to be all funny all the time. It's only this 15 seconds. What what has happened, and this is why I wanted to talk about this a little bit, because um, I cannot stand Seth MacFarlane. I cannot stand Family Guy. And I was hesitant, but I sat down to watch it and tried to have an open mind. And I got to tell you, I like the show a lot. And the reviews really? were terrible. But the show is really good. And it's getting better every week. Well, that's cool. And, yeah, um, I'm honestly surprised. The humor sometimes you kind of go, hmm, and sometimes you wonder what they're thinking when they do something. So I'm not sure if even they understand if they're supposed to be more of a comedy or a drama. But the storylines are interesting, the characters are interesting, and. Seth MacFarlane is not that great of an actor, but it, for some reason, if you think of it as Next Generation, and they do everything possible to make it look like a Star Trek show from even the opening credits to the music to the sets, 
and it's it's staggering to me how hmm. close it is to Star Trek: The Next Generation. And McFarlane was a fan of it, and it shows. And so I, I say people who are fans of Star Trek or Star Wars or sci-fi in general should give it a shot because, um, like I said, you don't have to like Seth MacFarlane. This this actually, okay. it's okay. Yeah. So I, I was okay. surprised. So do you think um, do you think it's going to stay? Well, the reason I think it's got some legs is that um, – the show was top five in ratings the first two weeks it's been on. Okay. But um, it's premiere. It's how many? How many? How long has it been on? on? Thursday. Hmm. How long has it been on? A couple weeks. Okay. Yeah. Um, and you can get the first episode for free on iTunes, and you know there's on demand and all that stuff. And uh, yeah, I, I I recommend you check it out. The okay, the next episode premieres Thursday night, and I'm curious how it's going to do on Thursday night. If Fox is smart, okay, and the well, ratings just, start to just, tumble, they should the move it to what? To we'll like see. Tuesday, something like that. Yeah, some other night okay. where it can have a chance to grow ratings because uh, they've got they've got some great potential there. Okay, I mean I'll. Um, I saw I missed a little, but I'm sure I know I can catch it on Hulu because Fox has they put their shows on Hulu. Oh so yeah, it's on Hulu for sure. Yeah. Okay, cool. Now, what about the other one, Discovery? So, um, Discovery premieres this Sunday night, and it's the new Star Trek series, and it's been getting a lot of flack, and a lot of um, rumors have been spouting about it, and um, you know That's how right. it doesn't follow continuity. Of the Star Trek fans are upset. Um, the people who don't know what Star Trek is don't even know there's a new show. Just uh. it's it's been it's been very strange. Um, they had their red carpet premiere tonight, so I'll be curious to see what the reviews are. Yeah. Okay. And you weren't there, but um, yeah. No, so they I'm asked curious. Me. I said no. I said I had a radio <laughs> okay. show tonight. I said I can't go. I said I got a radio show. Oh yeah. I, I <laughs> but you know what is funny? I'll tell you this. For the magazine, I actually do have a press credential that I can be on the red carpet and interview people. I have, I, they gave me one. I have a credential. I can go to the red carpet with my press credential that I got, and I can sit there like for the Oscars and the Emmys, and I can hold a fucking microphone if I want to, and I can record people and I can interview if I wanted to do that. <laughs> we should do that as a special show down the road. That'd be fun. So you'd have to fly to L.A., and then you'd have to drag my ass down there. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> well, who knows who you'd get? It's true. But anyway, I'm I'm curious what they're going to do in terms of the show, how good it's going to be. I'm I'm trying to be optimistic, and it's already been renewed for another season. And you, as most of listeners probably know, it's going to be on a streaming service. It's not going right, to be on television. Yeah. Uh, yeah, CBS All Access. But the first episode does premiere on CBS this Sunday. Okay. So we'll we'll see what happens. I'm like now, I'm you know, to, maybe this I'm is a good time, optimistic. and I forget, and I forget who he has, but we had that Star Trek Star Wars, um, you know, yes. uh, mm-hmm. hit on with the books. We should get the Star Trek guy back, and maybe he can ask, and maybe we can, you know, I don't know. I'm sure he's going to watch it. And we kind of get an idea of what he thinks. 
Well, um, I was going to ask you, actually, if you wanted, um, I can see if I can get one of the people who actually writes for, for the show. Well, yeah, that would be even better. <laughs> I'll ask. Yeah. Yeah. Because we, we might you know, be able to you get always want to say if it's, it's getting a lot of flack about the writing and whatnot, let's go straight to the writer. Let's see, you know, because sometimes these guys have limitations. See, sometimes they people rail on these writers, like what are they doing and this and that. Well, sometimes the producer and the director literally is saying, no, I want this. And so the guys really don't – they have to work within these kinds of restraints, and, and they don't – and so it doesn't come out to be that way. So they, I think sometimes they take a lot of flack where they shouldn't take some flack. I agree. Um, yeah. And uh, now well, if the writer you is and the producer, writers too. Yeah, but if the writer is the producer or the director, then you can give them all the shit you want. <laughs> yeah. No. I like that. So – well, that's cool. I mean, I yeah, I was totally snowed on the Orville thing then. I thought for sure this was going to be another – because why would you ever not think that whatever Seth MacFarlane doesn't do is not going to be comedic with Family Guy and Ted and the Cleveland show? You know, you, you think that it's going to be comedic. You think it's, that's what it's going to be. Like he doesn't have any other kind of, um, you know, thing in him. That's just what it's going to do. So I, I'm I'm kind of surprised yeah. to hear your review of it. Well, yeah, in fact, when I sat down and watched the first episode, I said, well, I'm going to give it a few minutes, and then I'll probably be turning it off. And then next thing I know, the episode was over, and I went, holy cow, that was not what I was expecting. And so I watched yeah. the second episode and went, holy cow, it's even better. So, so is yeah, he like I'm the captain of the ship? What is, what is Orville? Is Orville the ship, or is it a Orville's station, the ship. a planet? Okay. Orville's the ship. And like like i said it's it's so much star trek elements there's instead of a federation it's a union and um sure they have I'm surprised it wasn't know, an order. villains <laughs> hmm? i'm surprised it wasn't like an order you know like they have the first order now in star wars that's the only thing about that i did not like in the first one i thought that that was a really lame name the first order it's like really did you yes. want the third no, but I mean, it's like the first order. It's like you couldn't have thought of, you know, why couldn't you have just called it the Empire again and just say it's the rise of the Empire? You know, like the Empire is coming back, you know, something to that effect. But the first order literally, I thought, sounded lame. Yeah. You know, I, I, uh, I mean, yeah, I just I don't know why they you. still call it the Empire. I mean, you got the Rebellion and the Rebels. I mean, you still call them that. You don't call them the Union workers. So why call it the First Order? I mean, you know, just call it the Empire. Call it what it is. I mean, you got the same kind of ships. Everything kind of looks the same, but then all of a sudden you're calling it something totally different. Call it the Empire. That's what everybody likes. That's what everybody knows. Just it's the rise of the Empire or something. You know, you're bringing the Empire back or whatever you wanted to say. I don't know, but... You could have done it a better way than call it the First Order. That just doesn't sound scary to me. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Yeah, well, I'll you know, call I mean, JJ and tell him. It is. That's just one complaint. I'm like, it, 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 just, just call it the Empire, dude. I mean, honestly, you know, it's, you know, you could say the decline of the Empire, and then it's like, you know, this is the rise. You know, this is the rise of the new Empire. You know, we're gonna do, we're gonna learn from the past, and blah 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 blah. blah. You know, but yeah. Well, um, so what I was going to say to the listeners is uh, give Orville a shot and let us know what you think. And definitely, and you do the like same. I said it. And if you like horror movies and you like, 
you know, if you like to jump or you want to take your girlfriend on a date, she's going to jump into you, go see it. Four, four and a half out of five stars. Um, you will be you will be highly entertained, uh, and it is good. The only other thing that I have is that I saw it in AMC, and and then this is no joke, twenty five minutes of twenty five minutes of trailers before the movie. I'm like, that's fucking overkill. <laughs> that seems to be the latest trend. That is for sure. You know why? Because the movie no. industry is getting hammered so much because Hollywood just keeps remaking the same old shit and doesn't bring out really a lot of new things that these movie theaters have to put in more of these trailers because they have to they need to make more money. I mean, they're getting hammered. I mean, you can only charge so much for popcorn before people are just like, this is ridiculous, and soda. You know, so that's – a lot of people don't realize when you make $117 million at the box office – most of all that money goes to the studio. It does not go to the place that you watch the movie from. Okay, they're not killing it like that. They're getting it other ways. So that's why prices of concessions and things are so high. I mean, if they're getting, if they made 20% over what the movies probably did, they'd be doing pretty well. But they don't get that money. No, you're absolutely right. Yeah. So. Yeah. All right, my man. Um, I think we'll be back in two weeks, right? Yep. Sounds like a plan. We'll be back in two weeks. And until then, everybody, um, like we said, you got some, now you got some shows to watch, and you got a movie to go see. So Discovery comes out, you said, this Sunday, CBS. you got Orville out on Fox, yep. and then you got It still running in the theaters. Um, and, again, if you have any questions, you can always email the show, radio at suspensemagazine.com. The new, the, the new magazine came out uh, a couple weeks ago, so you can email us and you can get us that and, we got a lot of stuff for you. So until next time, everybody, keep reading. Have a good one. Have a good one. Good night.